Hello everyone, and welcome to a new season of the Bulletin Podcast. This is Guilherme Deganello, and here's what's coming up. Welcome again, everyone. Just before we head into our episode, I have a quick announcement from the student government of the Willy Brandt School. So if you are listening to this episode and you are a student from the 2022 and 2022 batch, please make sure to invest just three minutes of your day and participate in the survey that was sent to your email by our president Inez Alberico regarding the co-creation of the roadmap. So fill out with any ideas that you may have so every one of us students can have a very joyful year here in Erfurt. We are living in an increasingly polarized world. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration. We must begin now. Welcome to the Bolton Podcast. So while we were planning the upcoming episodes of the Bulletin Podcast and thinking about the main events of this year, of course, a Brazilian would say, let's talk about the Football World Cup, right? But the importance of this competition for the podcast goes way beyond football. The discussion surrounding this mag event fit too well in a series of three episodes that are meant for us policymakers to reflect on policies for migrants. This is because Qatar's edition of the World Cup has been constantly denounced for extremely inadequate conditions for their international workers. But who's exactly to blame for this? How can these workers be protected? As we look to being involved in policymaking processes, we should be able to assess the responsibilities of national governments, international organizations, and private corporations in the improvement of international labor policies. For this, I'm glad to announce that we have a very special guest for this episode, Professor Dr. Ahim Kamalin, who will provide us with his political scientist expertise and discuss with us the problems of violations of international labor conventions against migrants in mega events. Just as a small disclaimer, uh, this episode was recorded a few days before the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, and we know the situation may impose serious consequences to the international labor laws. But we hope we can explore this further in the coming episodes of the Bulletin Podcast. Right now, please take a moment to enjoy this very interesting interview conducted by my fellow colleagues, Ismriti Rai and Noor Alam. Uh, hello and welcome everybody to the latest episode of the Bulletin Podcast. Uh, today, uh, I'm your host, Noor, and with me is... Hi, I'm Smriti. And today we will be interviewing Dr. Kemaling uh, about international labor law, migrant law, and mega events. Uh, so, so hello, Professor. How are you doing today? Excellent. Fine. Thanks for the invitation. It's really nice being here. Oh, it's, it's lovely to have you here and to talk about this. So without further ado, let's jump straight into uh, the podcast and the discussion. So, Smithy, would you please take us away? Yeah, thank you. So um, now we would go to our first question. So it is like, could you please explain about the international labor law to us, Professor? Yeah. Sure. Uh, maybe just a little bit from my background here. I'm uh, I'm a professor here at the Willy Brandt School, of course, and uh, at this podcast here that really touches upon two key interests of mine. One is obviously uh, everything related to labor and social policy questions, both domestically and also internationally. 
also with a focus on the global south. So this is one part. And the other is kind of a, a little bit of a side hobby of myself is like the political economy of uh, of sports, uh, mainly football. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, in, uh, in these kind of mega events, also what they, what they do in a political sense. So this, uh, this podcast here really harkens home to, uh, to, uh, to some of my key interests. Um, yeah, and uh, about the, the actual question, international labor law, this is, this is a really strange beast uh, and you can always fill in the gaps here. You might uh, even know more than I do because I'm not a lawyer. I'm a political scientist and a, an economist here. But compared to other areas of international law, I would say international labor law is still a little bit in its maybe not infancy, but adolescence. So, it, so for instance, there is a very dense network of um, commercial and trade law uh, in the international regime, uh, both private business law and private uh, 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 trade laws, but also international trade laws. And we all know, the, for instance, the World Trade Organization and the World Trade Regime. Compared to this, the, the, the national labor law is a bit patchier because it, 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 it's an amalgamation, if you want, uh, between human rights dimensions and labor rights dimensions. And so the sources can be also multiple. They can range from uh, international or supranational organizations such as the United Nations, the World Trade Organization or the International Labor Organization. And in, in Europe, of course, the European Union. But there's also private arrangements, private law. And so it, it is patchy, as I said, and it really depends on what you exactly are looking at. So within the EU, for instance, labor law is usually a domestic affair. But then there is things like anti-discrimination, which is regulated uh, on the EU level. There's also health and safety regulations related to labor issues also related, uh, regulated on the EU level. So there, there's a relatively dense uh, legal framework, which can also be enforced on a national level. In other areas, you depend much more on the nation state. And the EU itself is, of course, much more integrated when it comes to these kind of um, standards and rules compared to the national international regime, where, you know, there's not even, uh, if you look, for instance, at the World Trade Organization and their rules, they don't even themselves have a social clause that would uh, safeguard in a, in a narrow sense uh, labor and social dumping issues or something like that. So what I mean by that is that um, you cannot really take anyone to court in the World Trade Organization because you think uh, that their exports are financed by uh, miserable wages, if you want. And maybe there's a good reason for that or a bad reason. With uh, I'm not saying that this is necessarily always an uncontroversial issue. And what I'm just saying here is that that these kind of rules are often mainly standards um, <clears throat> or conventions, but difficult to enforce because that often depends on unilateral enforcement, meaning that if one nation state thinks the other nation state violates a standard, then uh, this nation state uh, should take measures against this. There is, again, some exceptions <clears throat> and some regional enforcement schemes, but most of this uh, is, is depending on, on uh, nation states. Uh, and of course, there's voluntary standards also among companies, for instance, also consistent with uh, major corporate social responsibility standards by uh, big multinational companies. Yeah, so 
like when we talk about uh, 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 international labor migrant uh, right, uh, rights as well, we, we also talk about violation of it. And then now, apart from uh, the international uh, conventions, maybe we should also be talking about mega events and why do you think we should talk about it? I think they are very good testing ground um, for a, a lot of what goes wrong in international labor migration. So maybe just closing the bracket, there's of course uh, special types of labor law that try to regulate something which is even more difficult, which is the movement, the cross-border movement of our workers. And uh, when you sent me the invitation, you, you mentioned, for instance, the International Convention on the Protection of Rights and uh, Migrant Workers and um, Members of Their Families, which is a convention by the United Nations. But it also exemplifies the, the very problem of this. So the more ambitious you get and the more cross-border nature these kind of problematics become, the less likely it is that they are signed by uh, by, by uh, UN member states. So this is, uh, this is a little bit of a problem. So whereas a, a convention on child labor usually is uh, uh, ratified by more than 100 countries, this uh, convention on migration and worker rights is, uh, I think, signed by fewer than 50 countries. So that's the context uh, against which we, we, we have to, um, to argue here. And then the the, um, the sports events, especially these types of mega events, are interesting because they obviously make certain issues much more visible. They highlight uh, certain problems, and uh, probably everybody has by by now heard about the kafala system in Qatar. So when we look at the the, the Winter World Cup, uh, the football or soccer World Cup uh, 2022 in Qatar, this brought probably or drew most heavy criticism because of the conditions under which the stadiums were built and the whole kind of logistics and infrastructure organization happened, namely in a form that led allegedly or probably also with some uh, good empirical evidence uh, to, uh, to um, yeah, even deaths uh, because the workplace hazards were so big constructing stadiums uh, in a site like this during summertime, during day, uh, daytime uh, hours uh, led to um, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of cases of heat stroke and, and all kinds of work exhaustion that even ultimately can uh, could uh, and did lead to deaths. And I think this is this is where basically the, the, the whole, the two, the, the two issues come together. Namely, on the one hand, you have and the problems of migrant workers and their rights and and the, the mega event uh, the mega event excuse me which crystallizes a lot of these problems and maybe also makes them more visible on a world stage do you think like it kind of uh, uh, provides some sort of a, a leverage for the uh, discussion on violation of labor migrant rights or like uh, our focus should be on countries or just um, uh, or the organizing committee? Yeah, this is a good question. I, I think, um, and this is maybe I'm, I'm hijacking here a little bit to po uh, podcast, but I think it's important uh, to understand the logic of these uh, events and obviously they differ. So if you think about world exhibitions, they might work differently from a sports event, right? So you have to look uh, more closely who is 
bargaining on what to do what. <laughs> and of course, with the, for instance, with the Football World Cup, the main partner of the Qatari gov government is FIFA, the world's football organization, if you want, the official hosting organization and kind of the owner of the uh, label World Cup. And then the question is, what, uh, what does this mean? So, so other governments don't really have a, a real leverage on the Qatari government to basically react because uh, of all these criticisms of the so-called kafala system. We can talk in a minute what this might, might imply specifically. But, but uh, there is no real leverage unless FIFA itself finds it problematic. So because FIFA is the one uh, organization that has leverage over Qatar, namely withdrawing the tournament. And things like that happen in the past, but they usually only happen when there is a war or something like that. Uh, just uh, on a side note, we see the same discussions now whether the European football organization, whether they should withdraw the, the hosting rights of uh, hosting a, a, a final of a tournament uh, because of the recent events in Russia and, uh, and the Ukraine. And even there you see that UEFA is not really responding. So unless these organizations respond and, and use their leverage, there, there is not much reason to believe that there is a direct leverage apart from the general one, which makes the Qataris look bad in world opinion. So that there's a bit of a difference, I would say. So there's two different levels here. One is the direct one, which, which in this case, only the FIFA could exercise. But there's, of course, uh, one thing why mega events take place in places like Qatar is because they want to, to gain world opinion uh, or they want to improve uh, the image of Qatar in, in the world. So in, the, right. in principle, this this could uh, could, could be a, a point of entry for for NGOs or whoever specializes on human rights violations. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is where I wanted to also segue the conversation into why yes, Qatar would like would want to host this for X Y Z reasons. Would could that be used as leverage to push uh, uh, through? labor market reforms in those countries. Yeah, and this is fascinating. So, uh, so here we really need to, to maybe switch uh, perspective from FIFA to what the Qatari government actually wants. And this is interesting. And, and there, I, may, I might be even personally biased <laughs> in a sense, uh, uh, because uh, so there's a bit of an anecdote, um, which I, uh, I might divulge here. Some 12 years ago, uh, in 2010, I, I went to Indonesia, but I had a stopover uh, flight, uh, which uh, there was a stop um, scheduled in Doha, in Qatar. And uh, so I wonder why the flight was relatively cheap. I found out that it was because at the same night, there was this World Cup final in 2010 in South Africa taking place. And I thought, well, I have six hours there, so no problem. I might be able to watch the final in Doha uh, at the airport. Um, and uh, to make a long story short, there was nowhere uh, to be seen this this match. So it wasn't just, it was just not screened anywhere, which tells you a little bit what the Qatari government really wants. They are not interested in football as a sports per se. They, for them, I think it has mainly instrumental value. I think uh, Qatari shikes 
are crazy about sailing, polo, hunting with hawks, or stuff like that. They, they don't have a, I mean, I can't, I, you know, I can't look in their brains, but it doesn't seem like they have a genuine interest in football. So why are they doing it? They're doing it to do, and this is the dilemma here, they're trying to do exactly the opposite of what we are talking about here. They try to want to distract world opinion from things or from dimensions, from political aspects in their country where they might not look well. So and this, is, this, is a, this is a recurrent pattern what we see now with autocratic governments. They are the, right now the most likely hosts of such uh, uh, events because they want to buy either domestic or international public opinion. Uh, they want to distract from from issues. So, the, for instance, Saudi Arabia just recently bought through an investment ve vehicle and, um, a very established uh, uh, English football club, Newcastle United, uh, and for the sole reason, uh, arguably, that they want to distract uh, the world public opinion once again from from some uh, recent events in in the past which didn't make them look very well, of course. And so this is a bit the dilemma. Uh, this, is, this is what one could call sports watching, which is an established, by now established term in, in, in the um, public policy discussions and also in the academic literature, is the attempt to basically clean your image. <clears throat> it's kind, kind of a big PR issue. And then you have this kind of two things. On the one hand, Maybe there is some human rights organizations that try to drag into the open these, these worker rights violations. But on the other hand, the, the very reason why uh, a lot of these countries arguably host these events, it's of course not for economic reasons, because we know that these events usually do not pay off economically. Uh, to the contrary, they, they often cost more money than they um, then they promise, and and of course there are also gigantic wastes, especially in the Qatari case when it comes to environmental damage. It's rather that they, they try to basically distract from uh, from from certain things, and so there's a bit of a tug of war here between two sides. On the one hand, um, a government that tries to basically uh, appease world opinion, maybe also domestic. And on the other hand, you have a you have a bunch of NGOs, maybe newspapers reporting on this Transparency International picking this up and so on and so forth. They try to uh, to to use this as a as a leverage. Right. So the question then is this: To what extent, if all, uh, does this sport washing uh, work in favor of these host nations? Yeah, exactly. And this is then interesting. So what I, I gave you now is basically the motivation is, um, set of, of the major players involved. And then the, the, the whole, whole thing boils down to who, who wins, <laughs> which of the sides. And as always, there's not a straight winner. So there's always uh, probably a mixed balance. So, so the, the question boils down to this, did Raising attention, world attention to the, quite frankly, uh, occasionally horrible working standards in Qatar work. And there, I think the assessment, as far as I can oversee it, is, is mixed. But yes, there, there was actually a, a bit of a success story. 
Qatar did sign an agreement with the International Labour Organization uh, four or five years ago. Uh, cases of, for instance, uh, deaths related to workplace injuries get intensely monitored. Um, so, so it's not so easy to get away with this. Uh, the question is then, did Qatar really abolish the kafala system? And maybe I should uh, say um, what this means. Kafala system really means that um, an international migrant, very often they come from East or East, uh, Southeast Asia, places like Bangladesh or Indonesia, etc., etc. When they come to Qatar, they only have working rights with a very specific employer. Uh, for instance, they, they don't have the right to unilaterally uh, quitting the job, let alone looking for another job. And, uh, and it even constitutes to a certain degree some form of forced labor, if not kind of a legalized form of slavery, because the employers themselves at least until recently, could withhold all the legal documents these migrant workers brought with themselves, including, for instance, passport, which means is that you cannot even um, uh, leave Qatar without the consent of the employer. And this is, of course, if you think about this, this is a, it's a form of slave labor. And so, yes, I think there is some reasons to be mildly optimistic about this, so that Qatar felt that it needs to undo some of these regulations. Uh, so apparently, I say apparently because these changes have only been <clears throat> coming into legal existence very recently, if if they are not, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how whether they, they, they come into full uh, uh, um, practice right now so that, that this is a very recent event what we are talking about here January 2022 was planned and 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 so yes um, we, we can be optimistic but it's also not, not a coincidence that Qatar only agreed to do this now in uh, early 2022 when the main logistics of the event basically has already taken place so most of the stadiums have already been built etc etc and of course there's still a lot to do in the next couple of months but it's still fascinating to observe because from i'm not an expert so you you might double check but my feeling is that they had to postpone the abolishing of parts of the kafala system because otherwise they could not really um do all this uh, enormous and ambitious infrastructure projects within such a short period of time uh, with better working conditions. I think that, that that's the that's the story. Right. So so we've seen what host nations can do and what organizing committees can do and and what their motivations are. But uh, could you speak a bit more about private investors and sponsors and sponsors and the role that they have in 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 sort of all of this? Yeah, this is fascinating. So I al already mentioned FIFA as the one really key uh, bargaining partner in the game. And we know that the F FIFA always talks a good deal about things like uh, um, anti-racism and etc., uh, etc. Et but they rarely do very concrete things. And they ne never use political leverage, partly, of course, because they themselves... Um, are re represent or have representatives coming from the region. So that it's part of the executive committee shapes up that way. But also they get lots of money 
from uh, uh, from the Qatari and other other um, autocratic governments. Uh, much of this money is is coming in a legal, uh, the acceptable forms uh, of investment. But we all know, and there is good evidence, uh, if the sources are correct, that there is also good ev evidence that, for instance, Qatar. As many other countries, for instance, I, I, I'm not saying that Qatar is the only one, also bought kind of this World Cup, right? I mean, this, this is uh, this is clear. So, um, <clears throat> but as I said, I mean, as a German, I'm not, I shouldn't be uh, too judgmental about this because Germany also uh, bought the German World Cup in 2006, essentially. But nonetheless, so this is this is the reason why FIFA is so quiet about this. But FIFA has sponsors. Uh, important ones such as Visa, Coca-Cola, etc., etc., and Adidas. Uh, for me, it's always surprising as a German that Adidas is often overlooked in these uh, discussions, especially in Germany, because for me it's quite clear that Adidas is really an integral part of the whole um, conveyor belt of money and influence in football and and. And, and also making a business out of this. Adidas, uh, unlike the other sponsors like Visa and Coca-Cola, for instance, Adidas' core business is football. They sell shirts, they sell boots, they sell balls. And Adidas always has been the main sponsor, I think ever since the World War II, has been the main sponsor uh, and the main uh, logistics provider, uh, basically sports gear provider of, uh, of the World Cup. And so I'm always surprised that uh, that they get kind of a little bit uh, uh, the side look <clears throat> because there there could be a real leverage over Adidas on on these things because for them it's a business, and so shaming does work to some extent. So these private players, especially these multinational companies, they have been more reluctant to pick up or offer sponsorship deals to FIFA as a consequence of. The work conditions in Qatar, and so I'm, I'm not sure. Probably by now they have filled all sponsorship slots, but uh, I know for certain that companies like Visa and, and Coca-Cola were much more hesitant uh, and needed to get much more assurance than in previous events. Uh, and there, there I think there is some possibilities to uh, uh, to exert leverage. But of course, I mean it's still a business, and we also need to to see that. If FIFA doesn't get Western sponsors, they might turn to non-Western sponsors. And then the question is whether they are equally sensitive to these kind of uh, uh, problems. So if, a, if a, I, know, I don't know, a Chinese sponsor, it's a question whether they, they, they find this so problematic uh, when it comes to working rights. Yeah. So now, like we talked about how with like increased global attention, countries had to reform, although nevertheless, maybe not on time, but they did have to reform their labor right situation and now what happens when such events are over like when the spotlight is not there anymore like how we could ensure host countries still protect the labor rights um, so the good thing is that there is legislation on the way or has already been passed uh, in qatar and i don't think that they will necessarily fall behind so uh Legal frameworks also have some stickiness, so I don't think they will take it back now that the the eye of world opinion will, will go some other place, let's say. I don't think this will happen. But in general, what we know from the literature is that 
uh, sports events usually have very little in, in terms of lasting effects. There, there might be some positive cases. So, for instance, Barcelona in 1992 quite progressively used the Summer Olympic Games to relaunch kind of the whole urban infrastructure in the city. And, and this has created a lot of investment in tourism. In terms of politics, we rarely see that mega events really make a, a big cataclysmic uh, change to the better or the worse, let's say. What they tend to do is, uh, um, is that they actually do work in favor of governments, not always, but at least uh, there seems to be a, a little bit of a honeymoon effect, <laughs> but quite a short-lived one. Um, and this might be actually only um, true for autocratic countries. So we all know, for instance, that in Brazil, there was a, mo a lot of mobilizations in the, when was that, 2014 um, 14 World Cup. Thank you, yes. Um, that there was a lot of mobilization and a lot of uh, heat coming from the streets um, because of, you know, this, this dilemma of uh, hosting a very costly World Cup and at the same time cutting some social benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it doesn't always work, but autocracies tend to have the, the streets under control and then they kind of use it as, a, you know, a classical saying uh, by Karl Marx and others, it, it becomes sort of an opium for masses. You know, everybody feels good of hosting a World Cup. Um, having said that, as I said, um, there might be these uh, small victories um, nonetheless in, the, in that sense that um, that things like, um, um, for instance, introducing also minimum wage, which now importantly also uh, is not only uh, 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 relevant for national Qataris, but also the domestic, uh, sorry, the, the migrant workers in Qatar. So, so that these are really signs of hope, which, uh, which do uh, make me a slightly more hopeful. Because you have just to, to see that, I mean, can't remember the exact numbers, but I think there's only a couple of hundreds of thousands Qatari national citizens and more than 2 million migrant workers in the country. So it's an absolutely absurd country, also from this perspective, to hold a World Cup. Because, you know, uh, it's built for very few people with citizenship and most of the rest, yeah, they might benefit in terms of getting jobs there, but they are not, not even part of a fan base. You, know, you, you even need to, to fly uh, the fans of an event in, into Qatar. So that, that, that's a really strange thing uh, about this very specific event, Qatar uh, World Cup, but which also illustrates you a little bit um, <clears throat> the, the dilemma when it comes to migrants, in, because this is also what makes Qatar so special. It's just an absurd political regime and an absurd political constellation. If you think at the sheer quantity relationships between national citizens, which are an absolute minority in the country, and a lot of migrants with a way worse uh, legal standard. Yeah, I think um, that kind of brings us to the end of our podcast. Um, like, is there anything that you want to ask more? Uh, no, I think this has been a very illuminating discussion. I, uh, I'm, I'm sure that even our our initial readings were not as yeah. uh, expansive because Dr. Kemling's uh, insights and, 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 and his thoughts. Uh, so Dr. Kemling, would you like to give us a closing statement or, or do you think that you've 
added everything that you wanted. Uh, no, maybe, uh, you know, as a, as an academic, I'm always uh, better with criticisms uh, and, and I don't want to sound too pessimistic. So, so what actually I think this also illustrates is the power of uh, raising awareness. So we all know that these events happen and we all know the way how they are usually allocated. You know, we all know the kind of the politics behind it. But we can then uh, really make a use of the fact that we can at least bring counterbalance to the whole game. And, and so, so I think Qatar might even in future uh, serve as a reference point. What we quite clearly will see in the future is that um, international football events and, and mega events in general will become more polarized and there will be more tensions around this and maybe also more fractions, maybe so that in some parts. Uh, starting boycotting these, uh, sorry, some countries starting boycotting this again, maybe others um, having no problem whatsoever. But maybe this is uh, some sort, unless it really escalates, is some sort of useful heat in the system, which needs to be there in order to make sure that uh, these easy ways of uh, sports washing uh, don't go too well.